0: Corey, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a geochronologist, right? What on earth is a geochronologist?
1: (laughs) Great question. So a geochronologist is someone who uses um, elements to determine the ages of different materials, whether that be um, bones, minerals and rocks, all sorts of materials to determine how old things are.
0: So that's like carbon dating, but with different elements, too.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's very similar to carbon dating. The difference is, is what I date can date a lot older um, uh, material. So we go back; we can go back billions of years to to date things in the Earth's history.
0: Oh wow! Which elements do you use for that?
1: Uh, I mainly use. I've, so my main focus is using um, radioactive uranium isotopes, and those decay into stable lead isotopes, and using the ratios of those to determine the age of. of Especially a mineral zircon is the mineral that I'm most in.
0: Wonderful. <laughs> now, um, what stage of your career are you at? Are you a student? Uh... Uh,
1: I guess I would deem myself an early career scientist, I guess, would be where I would sit. So I've finished my PhD. I've had a few science staff positions. So I would say I'm in sort of my, the early career of my, 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 my science career.
0: Where, where did you do your PhD?
1: Well, so I actually did my PhD here at UBC with um, Dr. James Scotes. um, Focused around, again, geochronology with a bit of geochemistry in it of um, what are called layered mafic intrusions. So they're um, large masses, intrusive bodies um, that form under the earth. And they have, um, they're igneous rocks, but they have layering like we see in sedimentary rocks, which is really interesting. So my thesis evolved around dating those. Wow.
0: That sounds really cool. <laughs> and what did you do your undergrad in and your, your masters?
1: So my undergrad was a bit of a journey. Um, I started at a community college thinking that I wanted to be a chemical engineer, was sort of what I thought I was going to be. My dad was an engineer. I thought I was going to do, going into something similar to that. And then I did, I think it was my first two years and it was going okay. But I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. So I t- I needed some science electives. And one of the science electives I took was a physical geography course. Um, and then I, I took that course and kind of got hooked. And I needed to transfer to a university. And I got in touch with um, a faculty member here, Mary Lou, uh, who's now retired. But she kind of got me into the honors program here and then went through the honors program and did my undergrad thesis with James and then sort of that led into to the PhD, sort of how it all kind of fell together.
0: Wonderful. And then you did a postdoc degree
1: as well, right? Yeah, I did a postdoc. So so once I finished my PhD here, I went and did a postdoc down at Boise State University in Idaho. Um, They're kind of have a a world-renowned geochronology facility there. So I thought it'd be a great place to go to sort of hone my skills and and learn a bit from them and then That was about a year and a half working on similar projects. So again, sort of large, um, large events that cause um, sort of thermal or environmental perturbations, I guess, you know, so, 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 so sort of shifts in the climate. A lot of people think that these layer intrusions that I study have, um, large basalt basalt flows that are associated with it that can cause changes to our climate um so i was working on some rocks down in oklahoma that were sort of like like that so and then from there moved into a staff position there and then uh, an opportunity arose here so i I came back welcome back
0: (laughs) how does basalt change climate
1: so there's a lot of different um theories behind it. But so there's a lot of gas that comes off of basalts as they erupt. Um, in some cases, they interact with um, other rocks on the surface, say um, carbonate, so so, so carbon rich rocks, and those can sort of um, let loose their gases into the atmosphere. And then those those gases can cause sort of greenhouse effects and and, and can cause so, some, some changes to the environment.
0: And is this localized or planetary?
1: Uh, I think it can happen on mul- like on on different scales, but sort of the, some of the ones that I was looking at were on sort of um, planetary scales. But there are some, like the Columbia River flood basalts that maybe are a little bit um, lower impact for the planet, but more local changes.
0: And what timescales are we looking at? How long ago did this happen?
1: Uh, they've happened all throughout um, geologic history. Uh, there's been sort of flood basalt, provinces throughout geologic time that have been associated with large um, extinction events Um, the Deccan traps is one of them Um, and a lot of work that's been going on in the geochronology uh, world lately is dating these flood basalts or and trying to figure out one do they correlate with the timing of these mass extinctions and and yeah how long do they last for are they millions of years are they hundreds of thousands of years. And it seems to be that we think what used to take a really long time is now on the scale of tens of thousands of years rather than millions of years. So things seem to be happening a lot more rapidly than we used to think. And that, and that sort of happened because of our um, the advancements in, in mass spectrometry in, in our analytical capabilities. So now we can do things to a much more precise level than we used to be. Ah,
0: uh, so it's not that the volcanism is increasing. It's just that our understanding of... We're getting more specific in in our dating of it. Exactly.
1: So, you know, dating techniques have been around since the early 1900s. We've been dating rocks for a long time. But, you know, something... are Just in, like, our cell phones, you know, just technology has advanced and has allowed us to do things at much higher precision than we used to be able to do. Even... In the last fifteen years, there's been quite strong, uh, large advancements in, in those fields.
0: That's really fascinating. Um, with your research, have you made any really cool discoveries that you'd care to share, or what's your proudest discovery?
1: So, I guess one thing that's that came out of my PhD work here was that you know it, when we when we talk about sedimentary rocks and and we talk about you know laws that rocks abide by, like law of superposition. So the rock on the bottom has to be older than the rock on the top. Um, That was one of the hypotheses in dating these layer intrusions, is even though they have these sort of stratigraphic, you know, sedimentary looking rocks, is the rock on the top necessarily the youngest one, or can we see a difference? And so what we were able to do was actually see differences in these rocks. And it turns out that they're not necessarily oldest on the bottom and youngest on the top. There is some um, there is some changes in in where the um, magma is being injected into the magma chamber. We're able to track that using.
0: How does an, uh, a younger rock get buried by an older rock?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's complicated, um, but it has to do with sort of, uh, in this case, longer-lived systems. So basically what happens is what everyone thought was one large event that filled this magma chamber is actually multiple events over time that created the layering that we see and that layering then the 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 magma can come in at different levels within that magma chamber
0: sounds like a volcano with IBS exactly
1: yeah you got it exactly
0: wonderful <laughs> I'm glad volcanoes have it too uh now what are you doing here at UBC right now
1: yeah so my position here the, the my title is is um facilities manager and geochronology specialist at the Pacific Center for Ice Topic and Geochemical Research, so PCIGR, um, which is um, directed by Dominic Weiss. So my job here includes, so the facilities manager part is not the science part of my job. That is, um, you know, we have very large labs here that need to be kept at a, con- a fairly constant temperature. So we have um, filters and AC units and um, backup power supplies. So All of that needs to be sort of monitored and maintained. And that's part of my job. Um, and then the geochronologist part is the more science part where I deal with um, people in the department who are, need to have some rocks dated. I deal with the geologic surveys around Canada and, um, uh, deal with exploration companies around Canada and overseas and, and some um government agencies around around the globe.
0: That's a really exciting job.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It keeps me on my toes, that's for sure. Uh have you done much
0: well, I guess you've done field work, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so um during my undergrad when I came to UBC during the summers, I um got the opportunity to work for a few um exploration companies in the summertime. So the, the, those included some grassroots programs. So they were sort of intense out in the field, collecting soil samples for, for um, different types of deposits. And then also um, working um, at active mines as a mine geologist. So I got to do that one summer. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, that, so I've got some field. And then field work, I got to go to Montana. So that's where one of my locations of my my PhD was. And that was fun because that's up in the, um, it's called the Beartooth Mountain Range. And we're up at around 12,000 feet elevation. So so that was a lot of fun, you know, being up high and and doing some alpine work. There's definitely a lot of rock up there. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go to um, South Africa to see the Bushveld Complex, which is the world's largest platinum palladium uh, provider. Um, and chromium as well. It's a very big deposit. Um, it's about... 300 kilometers wide, so it's quite large, and about 10 kilometers thick, so it's a really large um, ore deposit. So I have to go there, and then um, a few field trips here and there. So yeah, I've, I've been able to get out in the field, which is sort of what's I, I find intra i enjoy the lab side of things, but I also enjoy the field side of things, and a geochronologist definitely gets to do a little bit of both, which is really nice.
0: It's always nice to have that variety. Absolutely. <laughs> Apparently the field is this place where crazy things happen. Um <laughs> I've personally never done field work, but uh, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share?
1: Uh do I, yeah. So I mean, it's always um, there's always times where it's a little um you get some nerve-wracking moments. Like in in, in the Stillwater complex, there's a lot of sort of rocky roads and and, and a few narrow roads and there's one spot where um they were taking a busload of people and so the bus fell off the road luckily no one was in it but the bus slipped off the road so when you're going up this really narrow um rocky road if you look down there's still the bus down (laughs) at the bottom of it and it's probably a good couple hundred feet down so you definitely when you're going through there you hug the inside of the road it's basically a big rock face on one side and then a big drop on the other. And it's as you go, you're kind of going up onto the plateau of this, of, in this area. So that was, that was interesting. Um, but I, I think the funnest thing I got to do was, um, I got to visit um, some rocks in Labrador, which was really cool. Uh, that was a fun experience. So we, we flew up into, um, well, one we get to fly to goose Bay, which is, um, where basically all the planes during 9-11 were, were um, brought to that were, that were flying over the Atlantic. So that was quite interesting to kind of see the, the size of this um, aircraft facility in Goose Bay. And then we, we flew up to a little um, First Nations village called Nain. And then from there, we had a local um, take us by boat up through the straits to camp up in this intrusion. And we had a guide and we got to go by boat to different it was the first time i've ever actually gone like traversed by boat through these little inlets and um, got to f- see a few polar bear uh footprint never actually saw a polar bear but a few polar bear footprints so that was probably the most sort of exciting fieldwork was up there just sort of going by boat and being out on the atlantic ocean like that it was pretty cool
0: sounds like something people would pay a lot of money for i'm <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm sure there is actually a lot of I think they do a lot of tourism for um, like a, I think a lot of Europeans come over and they do sort of um, these uh, I guess you could call them n- nature excursions and they they take them up there to go see the polar bears and you know we got to actually touch a, uh, an iceberg and stuff like that so there's a lot of really cool stuff up there.
0: Going back to your work um, it sounds fascinating but um, But why is it important that we know how old these rocks are? You mentioned that you work with exploration companies. Why do they care how old uh, these rocks are?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we can start there. So let's say a lot of resources in general, especially sort of green resources, are becoming harder and harder to find. So a lot of the deposits that were easy to find before have been found. So what they're now doing, or what a lot of companies do, is they sort of take... What they know, study that, and then try and look for something similar to that somewhere else. So they'll say, okay, we got these kind of rocks. Let's find out how old they are. And if we can go somewhere else, maybe along trend or in, in a similar area, and we can find similar rocks, date those, and they're the same or similar age, maybe we have a good chance of finding a deposit like that. So that that's one, that's one aspect of it. Um there are some types of uh deposits, mainly sort of deposits that contain nickel that are of sort of a, a, a time frame. They occur at certain times in geological time. And so if we can date those, they they be they can almost use them as a targeting tool for for their exploration, It's one way. Cool. And then, you know, we it's important for um looking at environmental aspects like or, or, or climate change in general as well, because we can look at climate change in the past. Obviously, the climate change we're seeing now is not like any um, anything we've seen before, but we can kind of look at the rates of climate change. We can look at the rates of how um, species evolve. And so in order to look at any, in order, I always, this is something I always tell people. If you want to determine a rate of something, you need to date it. So if you don't have a date, you cannot determine a rate, right? So if you're if you're looking at uh, ammonite species or or any kind of fossil, and you're looking at evolution, you need to know sort of you want if you want to know how fast that happens, you need to figure out okay, well how how old are these fossils and how old are these fossils? And the only way we can do that is by dating rocks that that sort of bound those those fossils and so that's that's something I've worked a lot with um, in collaboration with other people that should be your slogan
0: if you need a date you, or if you need a rate uh, you got a date
1: you got a date exactly
0: now you're clearly really passionate about your work um, but what is the best part about
1: your work for me the best part about my work is the variety you know it, it, it is fun to work on my own research. But what I really like to do is I like to collaborate with people, which people do in their own research. But I feel like at the, the position that I'm in working with so many different people, you know, I get to work in B.C., I get to work in um, Australia, I get to work down in in South South America. And so getting to work with different people with different backgrounds, with like mineral exploration companies, with paleontologists, I feel like that really allows me to dive into more avenues of geology. Um, not not to say that I don't enjoy my igneous rocks, but it's also fun to work on other projects. So that's really fun and I'm and I'm definitely a um, a mechanical person. I like I really like tinkering with things. so the, the the mass spectrometry side of things and and dealing with sort of the nuances in the lab. I love doing that part too. So I get to satisfy both the, the scientists or the geologists in me, but also sort of the the uh, mechanical person in me as well.
0: I know I'm not supposed to stereotype, but that is something I've noticed with geochemists. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm sure you have.
0: They love work dabbling in multiple different fields.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, it, it helps keep things interesting for me and, and it helps sort of keep my brain um, challenged, you know, it, it's, it's definitely, it's not, you know, the same thing every day. It's always fun. I mean, some days I wish it was the same thing every day, but I definitely enjoy coming to work and, and, and not necessarily knowing exactly how the day is going to go. sounds
0: very exciting. <laughs> now, of course the, the opposite question, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work?
1: On, on, on the same sort of top like topic, it can be sometimes, fixing things can be frustrating or trying to fix things can be frustrating when they can't, when it's difficult to fix them. So, um, you know, when we on campus last week, we had, um, we almost had a campus wide power outage and, you know, we do have backup power for our instruments, but eventually those batteries are going to run out. And if we don't have power back before that, then our instruments lose power and our Instruments like being on, they don't like being turned off and especially they don't like being turned off suddenly without any sort of care. Um, So things like that are uh, stressful moments of things like that, where, where they're sort of out of your control and you just sort of have to, to, to be on standby. So those are sort of, that, that would be the biggest, um, downside to, the, to, to that is sort of always worrying about those kind of issues.
0: Last week was st- stressful for all of us, but I can only imagine uh, what it must have been like for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like losing power is never good. And I was thinking campus-wide, just thinking of how many people were going to be affected by that. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your work or your studies?
1: Um, I, I don't specifically, um, but through working here, especially with Dominique, who is very good at, um, you know, making sure that, you know, everyone gets a fair chance. Everyone is represented. Um, that's definitely, she's been a great mentor on that side of things. And the university in general has, what has been great, um, for that kind of thing. And I think for me, it's more because I don't belong to any underrepresented group it's more being aware uh of that is, is an important thing um and so i've been able to to take part in a few courses about things like um, subconscious bias and stuff like that um so even though i'm not re- i don't represent a group like that I, tr- I i try and be aware of of sort of that situation
0: that's great um allyship is all anyone can ask for right uh as a whole do you feel like geochronology is a really open and welcoming field or is it a little more um insular and looks after their own or is it both
1: (laughs) so i would say it definitely used to be i'm gonna say it's it's getting better um it definitely used to be um well geology in general i would say say like back in the 80s even early 90s was a very inclusive um male dominated without a better term male dominated field um and geochronology was no was was a perfect example of that and i think um it's getting much better um but we definitely we definitely take care of like it, it's one of those things where once you're a geochronologist you definitely take care of each other um definitely that, like, that was one thing that I've, we, I've i've learned through my time here and then also at boise state is is um you wherever you are um a fellow geochronologists are there to help. We have uh, message boards and uh, Slack channels. You know, people have issues or problems with their instruments or need help with something or, you know, can't get something because it's backordered. Everyone always jumps in to help and, and is willing to send things or have advice or, or video chat to see what's going on. So, no, it's definitely a great group to be a part of.
0: It sounds like a, a tight community. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, every field this year has had to deal with one major hurdle, actually the last two years, uh, COVID. How has COVID impacted your work and, or has it?
1: It definitely has, Um, especially when a bit of, so we, we do a lot of work for universities, governments, and they require funding to do their field work and then send us our send us their samples today. So if they can't get out in the field, there's no work for us to do in that sense. Um, so I definitely think the first year of the pandemic was pretty hard because everything really shut down the first year. So no one was going out in the field. So that was difficult. Um, as far as work in the lab, it luckily the lab here is quite large, so we have room to spread out and. Um, a lot of our instrumentation we can run remotely, which is great. Um, one, so I don't have to be walking back and forth from my office lab. I can stay in my office and see what's going on in there. Uh, but two, we can run samples from home. So if someone can't come in or the the university shuts down, we still have the ability to, to run remotely for a while. So that's nice. But it definitely affected um, sort of the throughput of samples COVID did for sure.
0: I've sometimes heard people talking about how they see this big fancy lab with all this expensive equipment, but they never see anyone in there. And the thing is, like you said, that equipment is always running, but you could be running it from, from the beach.
1: Absolutely. And and we do that with a lot of, um, we, we used to have visitors come and, and work in the lab, and, and they don't do that as much anymore because of COVID. But we can still allow them the experience of, you know, whether it's Seeing data come off the instrument, or in the case of uh, a laser system placing analytical spots on the laser remotely, so they still get to be involved in the process a bit, even if they can't come here. Um, so that's uh, yes. So even though there's no way, if, if you come by PCIGR on the first floor and there's no one in there, the sample samples are still being run. Still, work is still being done. We're just not in the room, and, and we try not to be in the room too much <clears throat> because you know, us walking around opening doors changes flow of air in there and and can cause, especially if you're running something, those instruments are very sensitive. So you kind of want to reduce the amount of traffic in those rooms anyway.
0: You were working from home before it was fashionable. Now you've been really inspiring today. I'm curious who inspired you while you were uh, starting off?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, so I guess... I mean, I've had a lot of great mentors through my life. I mean, my my mom and dad were, were gra- It's funny, <clears throat> my mom and dad are complete polar opposites. My mom is um she is a preschool teacher. Or she was, she's retired. She was a preschool teacher. She's very into arts, very into that. And my dad was a mechanical engineer, very, you know. He had organized, you know, straight path. My mom would take the curved path, and he takes a straight path. So they're very different, but um, you know, I think I learned a lot from both of them. And and, and then you know, once I started university here, um, it was definitely James and Dominique were 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 great um, mentors both for um, professional and personal aspects of my life, which was great. How to not only how to be a good scientist and work ethic, but also how to be a good person and treat other people, which is which was really important. Then, going and for me, going and seeing another. So I grew up in the Lower Mainland in Vancouver and went to school here, did my grad school here. So I was very sheltered in in that aspect. So going to see another country, albeit the U.S., not completely different but different in in certain aspects for sure um just seeing how you know a different lab worked and 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 working with so my supervisor there my boss there was uh his name's mark schmitz and he was or he is a really he he taught me a lot about being open and um just maybe he was he was an interesting character because he was He's a very—he's a brilliant man. He, he's a brilliant man, but he definitely taught me how to relax a little bit and just his openness to cooperation, collaboration. You know, and some some people in the academic community can be very sheltered or inclusive and not really want to <clears throat> help people out outside of their inner circle. And he was always so accommodating to people. It's like, oh, you want to send some samples here? Absolutely. Or you need something at that lab? Sure. And I still talk to him all the time. And he sends me stuff here if I need it and that kind of stuff. So, so definitely those people I think have.
0: Again, you're reinforcing that geochemistry stereotype of, you know, being interested in all sorts of different things. You've got your parents from two different uh, ends of the spectrum and your, your mentor, um, all mentors who um, dabble in many different aspects of geochemistry. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you're at the beginning of your career. I want you to look to the end of your career. What would you like to have as your legacy? when you retire
1: it's funny Cause yes, you get caught up so much on the now you don't think about what's going to happen. I mean, I guess what I would like is, so what I, what I came back here to do was really to help establish a geochronology facility here at UBC was sort of my goal and what I wanted to do coming back here and, and, and to keep PCI GR in general moving forward, but definitely the geochronology side of things is something that I wanted to develop and grow. So I guess my long lasting stamp here would be that if people in Canada or around the world are, are, are looking to date their rocks, you know, this is sort of one of the first places that, that they think about going to. And, and maybe, you know, eventually there'll be someone else sitting here that's taken my position and it's sort of I get to pass the torch on, on onto them would be the hope.
0: That's really exciting. I hope you get that. <laughs> we'll have to think of a snappy name for it. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, my final question, um, you, you kind of touched on this earlier. I find that fields in general, um, no matter what discipline you go into, are changing at the speed of light. Uh, you mentioned that the computing power um, to process your samples has increased exponentially over the last 15 years. Uh, where do you see geochronology going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes and get ahead of the curve?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, 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 at least in the analytical geochemistry field, we're always striving for higher Precision, accuracy, sensitivity, all those things. And I think where we're still seeing a large inv- advancement is um, in sort of the electronic side of things. So our detectors, where we detect our, um, our sample. And so we're dealing with, right now, we're dealing with very, so we're dealing with picograms of, of material, which in terms of grams is 10 to the minus 12 grams. So it's a very, 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 it's almost, you can't even really, call, like if someone told me what size, to pick, I couldn't tell them. It's it's tiny. I mean, we're dealing with minerals, so we're talking about on the micron scale. So it's very small, finicky work. And I think if one of the big things is pushing to smaller sample sizes, that's always the thing. So when we look at a mineral, and especially zircon, there's structure to it. There's, there's different chemical zonations. Um, which maybe relate to um, different age populations. So we're always trying to shrink the, the size of our sample to get more information out of it. So I say that that's sort of where I see the field going is, is at least for me, what I, what I think would be really cool to see is if someone could use a laser to cut a, a mineral up into smaller pieces and then we could date even smaller pieces um would, would be something that would be super cool to see someday. And I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're working our way there. Um so that would be something I would really like, really like to see. Um and I think it'll happen. I think it'll happen. Um we actually in in our group we just bought a new mass spectrometer. It's actually sitting in the basement in a couple of big boxes to do higher precision and smaller samples for geochronology that'll be, and it'll be dedicated to just that. So I'm really excited. Hopefully we'll have that up and running in February. So, so hopefully we'll, people will be seeing some, some exciting news from that. Um, But as far as sort of the next generation, I think the, and what I, and it was sort of advice that I got is just sort of like get involved, you know, don't, don't be scared to go talk to a super, like a, a faculty member You know, I remember going and talking to James about doing an honors project and it was definitely a nerve wracking thing, but it's sort of what got all the, it's really thinking about some of these moments in in my academic career is definitely one of those moments where it was like, okay, if I wouldn't have done that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about geochronology, which is kind of crazy. Um, But yeah, don't be scared to uh, talk to them and get your, like, just kind of get in, make mistakes. uh, I got the opportunity here to work with some sort of vintage mass spectrometers, if you want to call them vintage, sort of in the 80s. Um, they're still here up on the third floor. Um, but, you know, the, it was very analog. So I got to go in there and, and you know, turn knobs and, and and do different things. And I found that that really and getting the opportunity to that again, I think a, a lot of people, if they asked for the opportunity, they'd be given it. So I would say that's sort of the biggest. So don't be afraid to go and talk to the, you know, the the the, the professor that you're. If you go to a meeting and you really have this professor, here. and that's sort of how I got in touch actually with Mark down at Boise State. Is I was at a meeting, and I had read a bunch of his papers. And I was super interested in what he did, and so during a break at a meeting, I went and talked to him. And then next thing you know, I'm down there doing a postdoc. So yeah, don't 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 be scared to go talk to these these people. I, they're they're um best interest is in you and and you know, they all want grad students, they all sort of want to have that collaboration. So yeah, don't be scared to go and talk to these people.
0: It's amazing. We I, I've spoken to so many amazing scientists, um, like James and Dominique and and so many others. And um they're intimidating at first because you know they're so smart and they've done so many amazing things, but when you talk to them, they're just regular people
1: absolutely exactly because all you ever see are these papers and um ref like their their list of papers they've written and their online profile and you know it's not it's not the it's not them as a person like that's their science and and they're very good at that science but they're also again they're they're just people like you and me right so and and if you're interested in 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 their science and you want to be part of that i mean that's that's sort of what we're all here for, right? Is to is to share knowledge and collaborate and 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 do great science. So that that would be my advice. That's great advice,
0: Corey. Those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: No, I don't think so. It's been great talking to you.
0: You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Honor. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.